Artsville, Artsville, the happening town where art abounds. Artsville, Artsville, from Asheville town where art abounds. Artsville, Artsville, feeling mountain high and inspiring North Carolina. That's where you'll find us, amazing artists and designers. Oh yeah, Artsville from Asheville. Jim McDowell, the Black Potter. Welcome to Artsville. I'm so grateful that you took time away from your practice today to chat with us. Your story is remarkable, and I look forward to learning more myself and sharing it with our audience because it is such a rich, poignant story. And actually, one of the things that I was sort of anxious to talk to you about specifically as I studied your work, there are a lot of artists that make work that pleases the eye, that is aesthetically pleasing, Your work and your practice is, in my assessment, much more spiritual in nature. You are honoring your ancestors with your work. And so the the kind of the connection to your ancestors, connection to the belief systems, whether that was worshiping ancestors in Africa or voodoo in Jamaica, and then Christianity in the United States— The face jugs, in my understanding, were sort of an amalgamation of these kind of religious, spiritual practices. And here you are today building and creating art and focusing your practice on honoring them through these face jugs. And so for me, it just has this poignant, rich, powerful spiritual dimension. Could you speak to the spiritual nature of your work and honoring your ancestors and the amalgamation of their spiritual practices and what that all means to you in terms of creating your face jokes? For me, it it means to go all the way back to Africa. In Africa, they were the kings and the queens and the workers in in metal and wood and stone and all kinds of things. But usually they had spiritual practices by the witch doctor, the person who was the guru and knew all about the history of the, of the face jugs and the history. That the face jugs were mostly for spiritual practice. They were used to honor ancestors or also to commemorate someone who died or to, to bring spiritual. They believed in spirits, and so they would have vessels that the spirit would be into. And that was very big there. It wasn't a big deal, but it was always present. Men were the only ones that did it. Women were not allowed. So, But when they were taken into slavery... They took them to islands to acclimate them, to Trinidad, Tobago, Jamaica. They picked up voodoo, their ancestor worship in Africa, voodoo in Jamaica. Now, voodoo or hoodoo says that anything that you possess, your dinnerware, your plates, your pots, your jewelry, anything, your spirit resides in it. So they started making that. They also did this because they knew they had to try to bring those spirits from Africa to Jamaica. They didn't know where they were going, to the islands. When they got to the United States, the missionaries quickly tried to convert them to Christianity, which has a belief in God and the devil. Believe it or not, they already knew about Jesus. They knew about the man who hung on the cross, even without the missionaries. So now they got those three religions, ancestor worship in Africa, voodoo in the islands, and and Christianity. So they combined those, and now, because they're slaves, they're not allowed to have a grave marker, they make a face jump. 
a face jug is for protection. Some of the white potters said they drank their beer out of it. It wasn't that big, okay? You didn't drink water out of it. It was for protection. They might have put it at the doorpost of the house for protection. They were also, because they were not allowed to have a grave marker, it was also as a marker. So that's why. Now, the spiritual connection that I feel is the ancestors want me to keep making face jokes because they have been forgotten. They have been obscured. They, their history has been wiped away. And so to bring back what they gave me, I used the face joke. Recently, I learned of a word called Sankofa. Sankofa is an African word from Ghana that means it's not taboo to reach back into the past and bring forward the history and the knowledge and the skills to the forward so we can move forward. So this is what my kill is called, and this is what I'm doing. I'm trying to remember that which is stolen from us. So you've been making face jugs now for how long? Uh, close to 35 years. Long enough I should know better to get a real job. 35 years. And do you care to guess how many face jugs you've you've oh actually made? It must be countless at this point. I've never really counted, but I bet it's at least five or six hundred, maybe more. I was <laughs> counting the other day in the, in the kill room. I got 35 yes. face yes. ready to fire. I mean, they're not ready. They're clamoring for clothing. I haven't got them. So, I mean, I think maybe between five or six hundred, but I don't know. I've never checked. Once I make them, they're gone. They want to go to a new home. <laughs> right. Yes. So this is part of a, a tradition, I'm guessing, that other potters are involved in, too. How many other potters are you aware of that make face jugs like you, or are you one of the few? I'm one of the few. I know of a guy in Raleigh that makes face jugs. He's 80-some years old. He makes them, but they're a little bit different than mine. He's a black man, but his jugs don't take on the connotation of the ancestors. He's just making them to remember people in the neighborhood. There's a lot of white potters that make face jugs too. And I got to make this point. They are from families that have been making pottery for years and years and years. And so they're considered folk potters. I'm not. I'm an artist. A folk potter from that connotation is from those families that made face jugs because they saw that slaves were making this cute little thing. And so when slavery was over, they, I'd say they misappropriated the jugs. They took the meaning and they want to make money out of it, and the roads were coming through, so they started making them. When black people were making face jokes, it never was about making income. It was always about honoring ancestors and remember our history and to help us to be protected from evil spirits. That's why we do it. I mean, now I'm making some money, which is really good. They like that, you know? So say, don't forget us. <laughs> so... Can you remember or articulate what it was about throwing clay 35 years ago that spoke to you? I mean, you clearly had a hunger and an interest. You you sought it out when you were stationed in Germany. Over the years, have you been able to articulate specifically what it was about clay and throwing clay and the wheel that spoke to you? Well, yeah, I'm an older guy, so I got stories. Don't get me started. The family always tells stories on you as you're a child. <laughs> Here's one. I'm 18 months old. I'm in a sandbox playing with a substance that I thought was clay. It had a smell to it. I liked it ever since, so I've still been doing it. In grade school, the white teacher would come once a month and bring something to do. She bought clay. Everybody got a ball about this big. Everybody else in the class was making snakes and all kind of weird things. I took a popsicle stick and carved a bird on a rock. And everybody was saying to me, 
you're crazy. You're not doing what we do. You're crazy. So the class was over. I'm getting ready to go out. This white lady grabbed me in my chest and said, don't you dare let these people pull you back. You're an artist. And I'm going to tell everybody in this school that you're an artist. So that was the start of it. I waited till I was 27 years old to volunteer to go into service at, at Vietnam. I was full of John Wayne mess. So there is a God. He, he put me in the craft shop instead. They had a wheel in there, but it was a kick wheel. I didn't know how to, to use it. I lived in a little town called Ansbach. And so on a Saturday morning in Germany, I went to Nuremberg. And I was walking the streets. I didn't know what the name for a pottery, but I saw somebody in the window making pottery. So I went in there and I asked them, pantomime, the wheel. They said nine. Three times they said nine. And then finally somebody came out the back room with a broom and handed me a broom and pantomime sweeped the shop. Well, first thing I think of, the prejudiced people? But I heard my dad's voice. You want to learn this? You sweep the shop. So for three Saturdays in a row, I swept the shop. I learned a little German. They learned a little English. And three weeks, three Saturdays, I swept the shop. On the fourth Saturday, I went to get the broom. They said, nine. They took me out the back. They were firing a wood kill. Man, I was so excited. They showed me how, how to load the kill and how to wait. And then they got me on the wheel. But the really the big thing that kicked it off, in Germany, in the Army, you had a ration. I don't drink or I don't smoke. So guess what I did? I went and got, every time I got my ration card, I got three bottles of Jim Beam and two cartons of cigarettes. Man, were they happy. They would have gave me anything for that. So <laughs> I stayed there about a year, and I learned how to do pottery. I learned how to fire the kill, and it was the most exciting part of learning pottery. But I didn't learn it good enough to really move on until I got back to the States. It was a lady in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, where I lived, that had a pottery studio. and But she had three young white women with her. And Miss Monaghan was kind of afraid that I would bother her girls. I said, look, Miss Monaghan, I want to learn pottery. I don't want nothing to do with these girls. So she took me on, and I took eight to ten lessons from her. I learned the basics. I still didn't learn the throat. So that summer, they were all going to go to Alfred University. Now, Alfred is the mecca of pottery. I met a guy that his wife was the granddaughter of Alfred Benz, who's the one who helped originate Alfred. But anyway, I couldn't afford Alfred. I went to a, a place called Ware, New Hampshire, a guy named David Robinson, and taught me how to throw. I was supposed to stay one week. I stayed two. Everything that I'm doing today, I learned from David Robinson. And that's what the start of me learning to be self-sufficient, learn how to process clay, learn how to throw, learn how to fire in the kill, the electric kill, which I've always had, and the wood kill. That was the start of it, and I'm still doing that today. What is the practical difference between an electric kiln and a fire kiln, Okay, wood kiln? The principal difference, electric kiln is radiant heat. It has coils around the circumference, and the heat comes out and radiates onto the pot and gets it hot. A gas kill, a wood kill, has a flame, a live flame going through, and it's affected by the placement of the pots in front of each other. You have a directional flame that hits on the pot and then kisses on the other. Also, it has ash, and ash by itself is a glaze. Once you get ash hot, it melts and flows down into pottery tears. So potters like gas and wood because it's a live flame, and you can kind of direct it to a point. Having a gas kill or wood kill means you have to consign the pots to the kill. 
you can't affect it only by throwing stuff in it like some soda or some salt or stuff like that. But basically, a big wood kill takes 48 hours to fire. You need teams of people. I have my kills going to probably take about 10 to 12 hours. It's going to be small. But that's what I need now. I need I need to produce work to pay for this kill. Okay, so obviously the so you're getting different effects yes. from each of the different kilns, mm-hmm. right? So as I understand what you're saying. Okay. I'm guessing over a career a potter begins to discover what their aesthetic is and what kiln gives them the look they're looking for. And then they use the kilns based on the application of the kiln, so to speak, to create the appearance or look or aesthetic that they want. Right. I got another story for you. I I was doing a show in an Amish place near Somerset, Pennsylvania. And this white father came by with his son and said, he pointed to me, he said, if you won't stay in school, you'll end up being a potter. And I didn't know enough then to tell him, look, I know how to make glaze. I know coefficients of heat. I know all kind of mathematical and applied sciences to do kills. A potter has to know a lot of things. That I, have a, I have about 40 years of accumulated wealth. Somebody told me several years ago that I was a great potter. Yeah, I was great. I've made every mistake known to mankind. I've blown the kill up. I put pots in there that were supposed to be fired to just get them hard, I blew them up because I fired it too high and too fast. So it's accumulated (laughs) wisdom and accumulated wealth and then knowing that you don't know. I've taken lots of workshops with other people, people that are famous, people that know, and basically they teach you. Here's another story. I was at uh, IUP, Indiana University of Pennsylvania, and there was a guy in there named David Hoblin. I was an adult education workshop. I've taken six of them. Now they wanted me to go to school here, and I, I didn't want to do that. But David David pulled me aside. He said, Jim, and David was a good friend, a very good friend. David said, look here, you like wood. Let me show you how to do this, because you need to be around the people that fire with wood. So David said, first of all, and he used the N-word. He said, you're going to be the only nigger doing this thing. I said, what? He said, you don't see no black people out there doing this. He said, what you do is you take shifts nobody else wants, because it's going to be about eight shifts to fire the skill. You bring real wood, and you take food. You bring food, and they see that you're interested, so they'll start to give you. They'll start to teach you more, and you'll be invited to the wood fire. I have been a gypsy potter my whole life. This time is the first time I got my own kill. I don't have to ask nobody nothing. I know it from demonstrated. I learned the ability. I learned how to do it. There's another story for you. David taught me. I love the story because I guess what I'm realizing is as a potter, having your own kiln, I mean, that's a milestone in your career, right? I mean, if you have your own kiln as a potter, that's truly a a milestone along the way. Yes, it is. It is an investment in time and labor and money. And you got to understand that there were potters, black potters during slavery. I mean, David Drake is my hero, slave potter Dave, but he was only making pots as the cash crop for them. When slavery was ended, they no longer have a kill. They no longer have clay. They no longer have wood. They no longer have a market. And so it was cut off. The ancestors have let me realize and let me know that I am the bridge between them and now. A couple of months ago, I was in the studio doing a face joke, and I was putting some kind of crazy thing on it, and I said to myself, where'd this come from? And they said, dummy, you're the leading now. You don't see this before you're starting it. So this is where I have to pick up at where they left off. 
all the history, Sankofa, all the history, all the knowledge, all the skills, I reach back and bring it forward. They knew about kills. They knew about some of the things, but they didn't have refined clay. They didn't have refined chemicals. They didn't use broken glass. They didn't use china. So I'm doing all these things now because I can. I know I have enough knowledge that I can put this on the pot and I'll watch it fall down and watch it come down. So, I mean, this is what I do. And I'm pretty much the only one doing it from my ancestral background. Being the only one is, I guess, in the arts is a coveted position to be in, right? To the extent that we're trying to create unique artworks and to be one of the few, if not the only one making face drugs is certainly for your art dealer, a very good, very good thing, I guess. And for your career is a good thing. However, this is a tradition, right? That needs to be passed on. What is happening around that? What say you about how this very important spiritual endeavor, I'll call it a spiritual endeavor, gets passed on to a younger generation? Well, one of the things that I've found out over the years is a lot of black people would rather not even tell the story. They don't want to hear this. They want it to die. But the story has to be told. Now, when I make the face jokes, I honor the ancestors. Recently, I've been doing a lot of reading. I got another story for you. When the women knew that they were being taken into slavery, they platted seeds in their hair. And the face drug is called seed carrier. So they knew when they got wherever they were going to be working or be enslaved at, they could grow the food that they grew in Africa. Case in point, Carolina gold rice, Louisiana, South Carolina, it came from Africa. It did not come from Asia. And the scientists have found out that the genesis of that rice came from Africa. African people brought it here. African people knew how to irrigate and how to grow that rice. They also knew how to flood it if it was like a salt plain. They knew how to get the salt stuff out of it, get the fresh water in there, plant a crop. Then when it was harvested, they let it dry. They brought the animals in there. They fertilized it. They get another crop out of there. So the black race has always been able to know how to do things, but we've never gotten credit for it. That's my job. My job is to bring forth everything that history has said it didn't happen. Black people had nothing to do. I, I did a joke not too long ago. The real McCoy, Elijah McCoy, a black man, invented a method for lubricating trains and different things. A black man invented the traffic light. A black man invented the gas mask that they used to take birds down there. He invented that. I mean, there's so much in our history, and I have to dig it out. Sometimes it, gets, it pisses me off because they've tried to, obscure it and try to eradicate it. But, you know, somebody's got to tell the story. It's my job. The answer is say, you keep telling the story. I don't care who wants to listen. I don't care who wants to, wants it. When I started making face jokes, I didn't ever sell them. Never. I met a guy, a professor from University of Pennsylvania in Johnstown. He said, I will buy a joke from you every year because this is historically significant. When he died, he had 25 of my jokes. <laughs> he has probably the most extensive collection. But Someone had to tell the story, whether you make money at it or not, because the story is the history of our lives. I mean, these are people that survived the Middle Passage. The ship left Africa with 500 people. When it arrived wherever, it maybe had 250, because as soon as the ship left shore in Africa, there were sharks. They jumped over water. They died. They threw themselves in the water. 
So I'm a survivor. I'm a person who is part and parcel of the people that thrived and survived the middle passage. So I tell that all the time. Nobody wants to hear it. That's okay. Keep telling the story. <laughs> we want to hear it. We want to hear it. You want to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm so <laughs> grateful you are here, Jim. Yeah, no, well, it, this is absolutely a vital story that we want to amplify and share with our audience and with the world because it, it is so important on so many levels. And, uh, you know, the face jugs, as I understand it, you, maybe this isn't the right word, but you scar and you use scarification to, I guess, bring the humanity forward. I understand you, you perhaps even write words into your face jugs. Where do you find the inspiration for the words that you write? The inspiration for the words that I write on the jug. When I make a body, the jug is maybe 18 to 20 inches tall. I start with a nose. I make the nose, you know, which is not a Roman nose. It's not a white nose. It's a big black nose. A lot of times the ancestors give me ideas. Recently, I did a jug of Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass was a great abolitionist, black man. I just read a book the other day. I was reading about, he, he was saying, the 4th of July is not my holiday, it's yours. So I reached back into history and see people of color who have done things and didn't get credit for it. I did a joke a long time ago about Benjamin Banneker. Now, people say Benjamin Banneker helped lay out Washington, D.C. Do you know why? Because the Lafayette got pissed off and ran off the job. And so now they had no one. So Benjamin Banneker completed the job, laid out Washington, D.C. with all that stuff. So I dig. I mean, I dig deep. Sometimes Jazz gets upset with me. She says, honey, you're getting too wound up. We got to stop for a minute. Because it's horrific. The things that you're going to learn about history. I did a jug. Here's another story. I did a jug, I guess about eight years ago. It was a beautiful jug. I liked it. But I got to thinking, why do they beat these people? For what reason? They didn't do anything. They just beat them because they wanted to. So I got a clothes hanger and I opened it up and I beat that jug. I hit it. I cuffed it. I just beat it. It made me cry. It, it just hurt me. So I hid it away for, I put, a, I put a cloth over it. I hid it away. So finally Jan came in and said, what's that? She, she wanted to see it. I mean, it was ugly. The eye was all misshapen. The head was broken. She said, we have to show it. So I, I fired it, got the glaze on it so it looked, you know, better. A guy from New York, Randall Morris from Cavan Morris Gallery, came here and he said, I want to take this jug to New York. I said, what? That thing is ugly. He said, I want it. So he took it to New York. And he put it in a show. And on the worst day of the year, it was in January, they had a snowstorm. A man walked into that studio and he bought that jug. He felt the pain. He felt the anguish. And he paid good money for that jug because I had to share 50%. It was startling to me. And that was the start of beginning to infuse the jug with what I'm feeling. That's what you have to put in. You can't just do art for art's sake. You have to have emotion. You have to have a story behind it. Otherwise, why are you doing it? I do it because I have to tell the story. They will not let me rest. Sometimes at night I wake up, I have to get out of bed and write down what they told me because you'll forget it. So that's why I do the jugs. I do it because I have to do it. And the story needs to be told. Jim, I want to spend a few minutes honoring your dad. You know, we've mentioned him a little bit. 
You talked about going to Germany and trying to engage with the folks there at the shop. They wanted you to sweep the floors and offended you with that racist notion. And yet you remembered your dad's advice and you saw past their ignorance and decided to sacrifice and sweep the floors for a few weeks before you started to accomplish your real mission there to learn how to throw clay. But then also your dad, as I understand it, was very much involved in the civil rights movement, marching on Washington as well. I'd like to spend a few minutes honoring your dad and and even your mom, if you'd like. Who were they as people and how do they inform your work today? My dad was an artist. He liked to draw. He liked to paint. We grew up in Washington, D.C. We were born in Virginia. My dad was in the Navy during World War II when all a black man could do was wait on people, wait on the white man, you know, be a cook or waiter or something like that. So he got out of there and him and my mother got married in Norfolk. And my mother was beautiful, vivacious woman and singing, dancing, and everything. But three babies happened in less than four years and she couldn't hang. So they broke up. He took us to D.C. He met my stepmother and he, he got two jobs. He got a job at the Pentagon as a security guard. And then he got a job at a place called Iverson Mall. Now, you got to understand, D.C., even though they didn't treat you bad within the city limits, when the bus crossed the line into Virginia or Maryland, the bus driver was quick to say, nigga, get in the back. And I didn't realize this till I was grown that my dad endured that for all those many years. My dad was a self-made man. He was well-read. He, he did go to art school, but he didn't go to their art school. So he wanted a job at the Naval Research Laboratory. So what did he do? He entered the Pentagon Art Show, which is Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine, Coast Guard. Every military service had people in there. He won it two years in a row. He won the show. So then when he took that accolade, he went to those people at the Naval Research and said, look, I won the show. And said, okay, we'll hire you, but you got to do it our way. Within two months, he was on board. That was how he did. Now, my mother, my stepmother, she was born here in Enfield, North Carolina. They were very poor. But when she met my dad, she started going to school. She learned how to type over 100 words a minute. She got a job. My mother went back and got a master's degree in education. And her thing was, you learn how to read. Our family didn't have a lot of money, but I had the Book of the Month Club and the Weekly Reader. And every week I had to read that story and tell it at the dinner table. So she fostered reading in us. And because that, I like to read today. And both my parents were very much of a go-getter. We moved to an area in Washington, D.C. called Channing Street Northwest in 1954. We were the first black family in that neighborhood. I didn't realize it. They bought the house for twelve five. They had to borrow $250 from the realtor to, to get the down payment. He lent it to them. My father died 22 years ago. My mother died this past June. My father said, there's not going to be any money for you, but the house will be here. The house is on the sale in the market. We're getting ready to split a lot of money real soon. So that was the start of it. We went in that house, and now it's worth millions of dollars, just that little thing. But my father and my stepmother fostered in me, do not quit. Don't let anything stop you from what you want to do. Always like pottery. There was a time in my life when, when they thought I needed therapy. So the guy named Pat Lacey, 
He said, St. John's don't work for you. Prozac don't work for you. You're always at the wheel. Just stay there. And so wheel is my salvation. The clay is my salvation. Go to that wheel. Make those spots and tell the story. That's what I do to this day. I mean, I still get depressed, but man, when you beat on that clay, don't talk back. You can, you can make something pretty, you know? That's what I do. <laughs> nice stuff. Your altar is the wheel, right? You, yeah, you wheel. pray at the altar of the of the wheel. Yes, yes. Oh, man. Well, your family has such an amazing story. And of course, your your dad was an, an incredible man. What about his parents? Tell me about your grandparents. Oh, my gosh. That's really something. Granddaddy Boyce McDowell, his father was white. And he was a tombstone maker. That early thing started one time. I was 13 years old. I was in Spartanburg, South Carolina. It was a family funeral. And Granddaddy McDowell was talking about face jokes. In our society, you don't interrupt when the adults are talking. So after he finished, I said, tell me something about that. He said, well, great, great, great aunt Evangeline, four times removed, was a face jug maker in Jamaica. We don't have any of her pots, but oral history says she made face jugs. And he told me about because he made tombstones out of granite and different things like that. And so he was back in 19... 20-something. He was a black man who had his own business. And he was very good and very entrepreneurial. And so he instilled that. And to this day, I like carving stones. I said, wonder where I got that from. It's in my DNA. Granddaddy McDowell left me stone carving. So I like the feel of a hard object that you just pound on and you can you can move it, you know. It's a different than clay. But my whole family, Granddaddy McDowell and Aura McDowell, his wife, my grandmother, they had eight children. Every last one of them were successful. My Uncle Dan was a flying sergeant. He knew how to fly airplanes and he could be 52s. But one of my uncles was in the Navy. He was good there. They were all, our family now has artists, lawyers, doctors, all kind of people. So the McDowell and Poston line stresses education and the ability to endure because society has not always been in our favor. I got another story for you. George, the guy who was helping me build the kill, white guy, really, really good. I mean, all the skills that I was cut out of, I couldn't join the union for carpentry or bricklaying or electricity or any of that stuff. George was putting the arch on the kill. We had to put a granola mix on it. And George is on top of the kill. And so there's two layers of brick. There's two layers of tinfoil. And now I have to make this granola mix, sand and cement and sawdust and all that stuff. I'm on the ground mixing this up. While I was mixing it up, I realized what our ancestors did. They had to keep working no matter how hot it was, how cold it was, if your back was hurting, if you got food or not. And they also would be whipped if they didn't move fast enough. So I, George didn't holler at me, but I kept working. I worked about eight hours making that. We took a break for lunch. But I had to keep working. And I realized what our ancestors did, what my parents did, how they persevered and thrived in the face of overt racism. You know, everyone telling them, you can't do this. You're not good. You're not welcome here. And so this kill is a testimony not only for my parents, but the ancestors who came before me. And I have obligation, a responsibility to keep it going. That's why I do what I do. I'm not going to stop. I'm just going to keep going. 
Well, and because of that dedication, your career is arguably at its highest point. You, as I understand, if you don't already, you certainly deserve global recognition. Your pots are selling for thousands of dollars. They sell out immediately. You have representation in LA and New York. It's you're, you're sort of living the dream for a living artist whose work, and I'm not talking about financial dreams. I'm talking about recognition and respect and demand for your work. How does that feel? Talk about that. Well, when it started, when I start making the jokes, I didn't think of them as anything but something different that I wanted to learn. But as I got into it and started to understand the spiritual significance and how I related to the people who came before me, then it, it started to become more and more viable, not just financially, but to make me understand the struggles that we've had. One thing about the face jugs, my face jugs are different. Not only is the spirit that I have at making the jug in the jug, but the stories are on the jug. I made a jug not too long ago with black features, but honoring Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I, I consider her black. You know, even though she's white, I gave this face jug the necklace that she liked to wear, the new thing. So this is something that black people do. If we have white people in our lives that are so out of the ordinary, we make them black. <laughs> you say they, they got black souls and stuff. But the face jugs to me is a way to stay connected. The Sankofa thing is really big when I understand that. That's, it's a community. I am building a community here in Weaverville, North Carolina. Not just blacks, whites, Chicanos, Chinese, everyone who wants to come, comes here. And they receive, not just from me, but from the ancestors, all the stories, all the wisdom. Because there's so much wisdom out there that we have obscured. I mean, I read a story about Timbuktu, one of the great cities of learning. A black person learned how to do triplaning, which is if somebody got hit, they knew how to cut the skull and release the pressure in the brain. They, they learned this, all this stuff. And so, I mean, but as you study and uncover parts of yourself, part of your history, you develop things that you thought you had a, a thick skin. A good story here. A gentleman in Virginia saw this house that he wanted to buy, and he bought it. And then he found out it was the house that his enslaved ancestors lived at in the back. So these are the stories that we uncover. I don't have any stories of my family into slavery, but recently Jan was doing Ancestry.com. Now, we believe that our family came from South Carolina. But when Jan started reading the history, we're from North Carolina. Some kind of way the ancestors got me back 30-something miles from where they came. My ancestors and that family tree is full of white people. Where did McDowell come from? The clan McDowell. So I don't get angry with that, but I use that to bolster the information that I have. And I'm trying not to be so pro-black. I want to include everybody because we all have contributed to this country. We all have contributed to society. But I just want, they've been fussing about this critical race theory. Look, I live at 24-7, okay? So all I want you to do is just tell the truth. What really happened? That's all I want you to do. I do that. That's what I do. So I keep telling the story. I keep digging. I just finished 1619, that book. You know, we didn't just come here. 
we didn't volunteer to immigrate. We were deliberately uh, brought here. You know, the book Roots. That man, Alex Haley, took him years and years to write that book. It broke his family up because his wife didn't want to hang with him. But it was a true story. And we all have true stories. You know, when I teach adults in the workshops, I say, you come from somewhere. So your family trees, Scottish, English, whatever, there's a design there and you need to, to get it. But we need to uncover the parts that we don't want to hear anymore, the parts that we buried. And in order for me to do what I do, I have to just be vulnerable. I got to be willing to take it in and to feel it and to go forward. So take us through the actual process of making a face jug. I'd like to understand the actual steps in the process, how long it takes you. Do you work on multiple face jugs simultaneously? Explain your process to us, please. Okay. Well, the face jugs usually start with making a body. You have to be able to make a vessel, six to eight, 12, 14 inches tall. It's vessel orientation. So I can make, I used to do four or five at a time. I only do two now. It takes me about, to finish one from start to finish, it takes me about a week. But the first day after I make it, I have to let it dry. And then I have to apply the nose and the ears and the mouth and stuff. And then I do scarification. Scarification was a rite of passage. When a child, a boy or girl became a man or woman, they would do certain things to scar their body or whatever. And I put that on it. Also use broken glass in the eyes to stream down as pottery tears. So I use teeth. I use broken china that won't melt, that fires up to, which is uh, 2,600 degrees. I make teeth in there. In fact, I have a couple of friends that are, are orthodontics that say they have three of my face jerks sitting on a, on a shelf in, in their office. They tell the people, if you don't do what I tell you, your mouth will look like that. So, you know, so I mean, making the face jerk takes me about a week. Now, that's just a week to make it. But you know what? When I told somebody about that the other day, they said, no, it didn't, Jim. It took you a week and 40 years. Yes. 40 years yes. of learning how to master your craft. I still don't think I'm there yet. So the face jug is finished. It's not dry yet. I let it dry for about a week or two. And then I put it in the electric kill and fire it up to 1,800 degrees to get it hard. Then I take it out and I put glazes on it, glazes that I have formulated from recipes that I've accumulated over the years. Cobalt, EPK, scaling, all kinds of things. And I make the glaze, and then I put it on the pot. And in the in the gas kill, you have to wad it because the ash creates a glaze that will stick to the shelf. I wad them, and then I put them in the kill and fire it. Then I say a prayer that it come out like I want it to come out. I got a load out there right now that I'm going to fire on Tuesday. I'm hoping, oh, please let me... I got some beautiful jugs in there and some nice pots. It's a week and 40 years. That's how long it takes a week you know, and to 40 stay years. at your craft. A lot of the young people don't understand the longevity of an artist. They think, oh, I can just do this and it'll pay off. No, you're going to suffer for your art. Art is a hard mistress. It demands all your time. You have to have a partner in your life. Jan is my partner. She understands. I got to spend time down there. And she's trying to talk to me, and my mind is on a face jug that's coming. Or we see a, a TV program of something. We look at Finding Your Roots and Dr. Henry Louis Gates. 
he tells us things that I didn't know about. And now I'm off to another tangent. <laughs> this is what happened. You have to be receptive to everything that comes your way. So this is what I do. Am I talking too much? <laughs> no, I'm loving it. I'm loving it. Boy, oh boy. I, I wish we had more hours to talk and I want you to come back and tell us more stories, please. That would be our honor. You know, when I introduced you, I introduced you as Jim McDowell, the Black Potter. And you coined the phrase, the Black Potter. Therefore, I used it. Tell us how you arrived at the point of calling yourself the Black Potter and how that came to be and why you call yourself the Black Potter. When I first started doing the pottery, on my business card was the potter's hand. And Jan, who is white, she helped me. She said, look here, you're black. You should be the black potter because that's a name. That's a trademark. No one else can get that name because you're black. The sister says I'm black, even though I'm light skinned. But the thing that really separates me is not only the face jug, but the writing on the back of the jugs. The writing is so significant because it refers to what's on the front of the joke. It refers to the whole gamut of the emotional content and also the spiritual content. So I'll make a joke and the writing might take a week or two before I can come up with something. You know, like when I first started doing it, I wasn't as well versed with our history. They could read and write, but they spell read, R-E-E-D. They spell write, R-I-T-E. I would write that on the jug. But now I have to be careful because sometimes I, I misspell words. And I excuse myself because I'm, I'm literate, but I'm not that well-versed. But yet I am. So this is what I do. Jim McDowell, the Black Potter. No one else can get that name. It's mine. Trademark. Registered trademark. Do not even, bu- do not even try. <laughs> yeah, don't try. Now, I also yeah. do something else. I, I do a little fish. Because I'm a Christian. I draw a little fish there, the Christian symbol. I do that too. But really, the thing about the jugs is I'm not doing them for accolades. The only reason I'm doing it is because I feel that the story is being obscured. The story has been misappropriated. And so I want to tell it. And this is how I do it. I mean, you can meet me and say he's the quietest, most peaceful black man you've ever seen. But man, I want to burn things down. I want to break things up. But I can't do that. I know that's wrong. So when I do that anger, I channel that anger into the jug. Mm. So if people see anger, that's where it is. It's in the jug. It's not coming out any other way. So, you know, instead of using wrong, you do it this way. Yeah. And this is what I love about your work and your story, because I feel like art at its best, at its highest level, connects us as humans and tells a human story and shines a light on our humanity and stirs up emotion and tells the truth uh, for good, bad, and ugly. An artist who is true to his self or herself, hopefully they are that channel, that medium to tell a spiritual story or create a spiritual experience. And the fact that your career, the world, and the art world specifically has, and your career has met at a point where the time for your work has come. And it's such an enviable position for so many artists that you can be true to your art and the art world is rewarding you for it. Right. I really like what you said. I'm not an overnight discovery. I've been doing this over 40 years. But black art is now becoming very collectible. In fact, we even 
heard of people saying, we want to start collecting your art because it's generational wealth. And so to ascribe, to be out there and to be selling my work and to be in the museums and, and galleries that I'm in, it's really a blessing for me. But I'm also thinking about those artists, black or otherwise, who are behind me. I want to find ways to help them. Sankofa Kill is going to help them. The knowledge that I have is going to help them. I have several people in my studio now who wanted to learn. So I'm teaching them and showing them. And this is the way you pass the information because I have too much knowledge and too much skills to just let it go. I want to pass it on, pass it on through the face jokes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we're better for it. I'm just so grateful that you are able to sit with us today and tell us your story. Will you please come back, Jim, and keep us informed about your journey? This is such poignant, powerful, rich history, not just art, but our humanity and our history of a people on this earth. And you are honoring that humanity through your work. So I'm just so, so grateful. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed this. Thanks for listening to the Artsville podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review, and share it with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes. Artsville is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles in partnership with Sand Hill Artist Collective in Asheville, North Carolina. Our theme music was created by Dan Ubik and his team at Danube Productions. Artsville is edited by We Edit Podcast and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Artsville. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating American contemporary arts and crafts from Asheville and beyond. Artsville, Artsville, the happening town where art abounds. Artsville, Artsville, from Asheville town where art abounds. Artsville. Hartsville, feeling mountain high and inspired in North Carolina. That's where you'll find us, amazing artists and designers.